baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It was the day the world changed forever. Pat, we are just currently getting a look at the World Trade Center. We have something that has happened here at the World A day of unthinkable horror. Pat and Jeff, I'm standing on 7th Avenue South, just about 15 blocks north of the World Trade Center. Both of the buildings have smoke pouring out of them. The north building, the first one... Four commercial jetliners were used as missiles to attack the center of commerce and government in the United States. Two planes struck the World Trade Center in New York. Another hit the Pentagon. A fourth was crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, as hero passengers battled hijackers. 21 years later, we still remember. The annual ceremony takes place at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. It's at the site where the Twin Towers once stood. The ceremony this year will be much as it has always been. Uh, I think there's real comfort in the predictability of it for family members. We read um, the names, family members read the names of each of the nearly 3,000 victims. Jesus Neptali Cabezas. Patrick Dennis Byrne. Brian Joseph Caccia. Daniel M. Caballero. The event fulfills a solemn promise made back in 2001, never forget. This week on 880 In-Depth, we look at the story being told at the 9-11 Museum today, and we'll examine the efforts being made to assure that those who are sickened by the toxic air in Lower Manhattan can get the health care they need. Welcome to 880 In-Depth, I'm Michael Wallace. Tucked tightly on the edge of the city's rebuilt World Trade Center is the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. On eight acres at street level, there are two square waterfalls marking the footprints where the towers stood. The names of the victims surround the two voids. Below ground is the museum, a somber place of remembrance. The museum's mission is to allow the stories of 9-11 to live on. Estimates are 100 million people. Um, who were born since September 2001 in America, just in America, who have no memory of this event. And so to them, it's history. But a big part of the story is what happened in the days, weeks, and months after the terror attacks. The museum refers to that as the 9-12 story. The 9-12 moment was a moment of unity, coming together, caring for one another, Um, feeling compassion, feeling an urge uh, to be of service to one's community. Public service and volunteerism were at their height in the days and weeks and months after 9-11. People felt motivated to do good in response to the obvious evil of the attacks. A little later, we'll hear about the growing number of responders, survivors, and downtown residents who are getting sick, and the need for the federal government to provide funding to the World Trade Center Health Program. The first 20 years decimated the 9-11 responder community. That means first responders, volunteers, responders. 
the next 20 years are going to eradicate us. And I don't say this lightly. Um, the worst is coming. We have not seen the worst yet. And um, this $3 billion will help save lives. But first, let's start with the story of the museum. It contains artifacts and accounts from that tragic day and the inspirational stories from the days that followed. Our Peter Haskell visited the museum to sit down with President and CEO Alice Greenwald. She spoke about the importance of the anniversary and the formula they've followed since the beginning. The ceremony this year will be much as it has always been. Uh, I think there's real comfort in the predictability of it for family members. We read um, the names, family members read the names of each of the nearly 3,000 victims. Um, and while that formula is the same, what I see changing are the readers. Increasingly, we have readers who are of a, an age where they're commemorating and speaking the names of people they never had the chance to actually meet. So grandchildren of people who were killed, um, grandnieces and nephews, uh, you know, uh, young people in their 20s um, who are standing up to remember but didn't know the people they have heard about all their lives. And there's something extraordinarily poignant about that. Um, it's, a, it's the transfer of a generation. And, you know, I always say remembrance doesn't have an expiration date. Um, as long as we remember that individual's life goes on in some way in our hearts, in our memories. Um, and when you see these younger people taking responsibility for remembrance, it's very powerful. You know, we, um, we made a promise 21 years ago that we would never forget and we are witnessing a new generation who have no memory of the event. I mean, we, we always say, you know, if you lived on September 11, 2001, pretty much everyone has their own memory of that day, where they were, what they were doing, how they heard about it. Um, and um, there's a, you know, the estimates are 100 million people um, who were born since September 2001 in America, just in America, who have no memory of this event. And so to them, it's history. But when you see them stand up and speak these names, it's um, bringing history forward in a very personal way, even for the people who don't have the memory of it. And, you know, it's true, just hearing you speak about it, having heard these names read and the, the personal messages, I just get a lump just yeah. thinking about that. For the families, what, what do you see as the importance of that day and hearing their loved one's name read aloud? Well, I do think it's an affirmation that these people will never be forgotten. You know, this is, um, there's, I, I think, a, a concern that the world moves on, you know, um, history moves on, you know, it's 21 years later, God knows there have been more terrorist events, thank God, not on our shores, but around the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's been pretty much a pretty terrible century so far that was kicked off with 9-11, if you will. And um, I, I think there's a worry that their tragedy will somehow be eclipsed. Um, and the fact is there are certain things that happen in this world um, where you don't forget because they are seminal to our understanding of who we are as a nation, as a community, as a global community. 9-11 was one of those events. So I, I firmly believe that just as we continue to go to Gettysburg 
you know, and visit that site from 1863. Um, and it continues to have meaning for us as we continue to live in the aftermath of the American Civil War. Um, it may have been, you know, 160 some odd years ago, but heavens, we're still in the aftermath of it, are we not? And I think 9-11 is one of those events that we will be living in the aftermath of for decades, if not centuries. Um, so when we gather together on the 11th every year, I think particularly for family members, but also I believe for members of first response agencies, um, people in downtown lower Manhattan, uh, people for whom this event was intensely personal. It was, we all experienced it if we were alive that day, but there are certain people who have really close um, uh, personal experience with the impact of the attacks. And for these people, it's a way of affirming year in and year out that life may go on, history may continue, things may evolve, but we will not forget. It's interesting you mentioned the fact that 100 million Americans have been born since then, and as you describe, the people who were here felt it most acutely. There are people elsewhere in the country who don't have that feeling. As time goes on, how does the museum keep moving forward with the time? So when it started, everybody knew what had happened here. You're now at a point people visit kids have no idea. How does the museum evolve? How has it evolved? And how does it continue going forward? Well, I think that's, a, that's the critical question. Um, one answer to that question is that when we were creating the what we call the historical exhibition and the memorial exhibition in the museum, we were very conscious of the fact that on the one hand, we would be welcoming people who were effectively coming in with their own 9-11 stories, and the way we told the story needed to feel authentic to those people. This was, they were in effect, could have been curators themselves. They all came in with a reference point. Increasingly, we have students coming in. We have people in their 20s who are starting careers in law enforcement and the military and intelligence agencies. Um, and the, the organizations they're joining, all of them were profoundly affected by this event and in some cases shifted um, their methodologies, their focus, what they do. So we believe that the way we've told the story actually resonates for people who don't have the memory either because of the choices they've made in their lives professionally or because the way we tell the story is we tell people's stories. It's a museum of stories, a storytelling museum. And, you know, that is the way we learn as human beings. We listen to stories sometimes over and over again, and they help us understand the world we live in. So, number one, I believe what we present here resonates for a new generation and will continue to do so. Um, but I also believe, as time has moved on, there has been a lot in the ongoing repercussions of this event, both geopolitically and otherwise, that um, the museum needs to step up and begin to integrate more into its formal um, presentation. So uh, while we have addressed issues like Afghanistan and Iraq and um, the hunt for bin Laden and the world of um, Islamist terrorism in our public programs. We did one special exhibition just before the pandemic. It opened about four months before we closed for COVID. Um, and that would have been November of 2019. We did a whole exhibition on the 10-year hunt for bin Laden, uh, which I think, 
I wish more people would have been able to see it. You know, it, it was still up when we reopened in September of 2020, but the loans had to be returned fairly soon thereafter. So that's one where I feel like, um, you know, that's worth a reboot in some form. Um, and, and being able to integrate that now into the um, exhibition content, I think, would be the right thing to do going forward. Um, the museum has to remain current. It has to look critically at the world after 9-11. Those are all part of the educational relevance of this place. But there are certain messages here that I think are timeless. And um, some of them are, in fact, pretty urgent to be heard and remembered. And, and, and what I'm thinking about is the way we responded after 9-11. Um, we refer to it here as 9-12. And the 9-12 moment was a moment of unity, coming together, caring for one another, um, feeling compassion, feeling a, an urge uh, to be of service to one's community. Public service and volunteerism were at their height in the days and weeks and months after 9-11. People felt motivated to do good in response to the obvious evil of the attacks. Um, that hope that was so present in that moment that brought us together is missing right now. It's absent. Empathy is absent. Compassion is in short supply. Resilience is something I believe we have innately as human beings, and 9-11 is the case study in resilience after adversity. But we forget those lessons. We forget them. So this is a place where you can bring your kids when they're old enough to understand and remind them that no matter what life throws at you, you can stand up again. And just look at where we're sitting right now. We're sitting in the atrium of the museum and we've got a new performing arts center about to open in a year's time and it's gorgeous. You have One World Trade towering above us. You have a place that was a war zone 21 years ago, an area of such physical and emotional devastation that at that moment, you would be forgiven for thinking it could never come back. But look at it. It came back. The trees are in bloom, you know? And um, I really believe that message here of um, being able to renew, even in the worst moments, doing that with compassion for others, with a sense of community, with a sense of service to one another, wow. I would love for my grandchildren to be hearing those messages right now because, you know what, turn on the TV and you're not getting it. You're getting the diametric opposite. Greenwald has been with the museum since the beginning and has served as its leader since 2017. There were contentious days at the start, but she calls the institution an immense success. Greenwald says they're constantly trying to evolve and they're bringing in new artifacts with the help of those in the 9-11 community. It is amazing how many people had some direct connection to 9-11. Either they hung a flag outside their apartment window or they came down to the site as recovery workers. Whatever it was, many of them put those artifacts into the back of their closets. They couldn't let them go. The shoes you wore at Ground Zero, the flag you hung out your window, um, the shirt you were wearing that day. It's so interesting. People do have, I think, an, an innate sense of history and everyone that day knew that this was history happening in front of our eyes, that there would be a before 9-11 and an after 9-11. We all knew it instinctively. 
And, um, you know, our curators continue to get phone calls from people saying, I was cleaning my closet and you won't believe what I found. It's been there for 21 years, you know, and I think I'm ready to give it to you. Um, there are the post 9-11 stories that need to be documented, you know, 21 years after 9-11. Uh, we just celebrated in May the 20th anniversary of the end of the recovery. People are dying by the tens of thousands from 9-11 related illness. Their stories need to be told. So the collecting goes on. Um, you had a second question related. To so just in terms of that, how do you build upon this and, and what do you do going forward in terms of exhibits? Yes, yes. So um, right now, you know, we're still in our recovery phase after reopening um, from the closure during the pandemic. And we put a temporary moratorium on our special exhibition programming, but we're beginning to reboot that, which is exciting. But what we have done to keep the museum fresh is we do rotate artifacts throughout the museum. Sometimes it's driven by conservation requirements. You really can't keep paper on view indefinitely. It needs to be taken out of the light. But it's also an opportunity to look at things through a different lens. So for example, uh, once a year we um, feature a different set of artifacts in the memorial exhibition. And they are all based on a theme. So um, the uh, theme a few years ago was, you know, sports, people who, because we had a big sports exhibition, so it was sort of the victims' um, sports stories, people who were athletes or coaches or whatever it was, it was lovely. This year, it's about relationships um, and the way they get expressed. So I'll give you two examples. It's wonderful, actually. It's very, very sweet and touching. Um, so one of the pilots on board um, Flight 77, the plane that was hijacked and flown into the Pentagon, a man by the name of Chick Burlingame, Charles Burlingame, um, flew for American Airlines. Um, after his death on 9-11, uh, his widow, who was also, I believe, a flight attendant for American, um, wanted to give something personal to one of his fellow pilots with whom he had developed a very close friendship. And she decided on the epaulets that were on his uh, pilot's uniform, Chick's pilot uniform. So she should give this to this friend. And, um, you know, there's something about that. He, he, he wore those epaulets for the rest of his career. I think he retired in 2018. So there wasn't a day that went by where he did not remember Chick. So just that gesture of the personal connection um, and how that got lived out. So that's just one example. Another one very different is a man by the name of Ronald Fazio um, who worked at Aon in the South Tower. And uh, unfortunately, of course, he was killed on 9-11. Um, one of the things that he loved and loved and loved were Reese's peanut butter cups. We can all relate to that. And his family periodically will come to the museum, to the memorial, and you know, as people do, they often leave objects of tribute near their names, um, whether it's a coin or a flag or a note or flowers, whatever. The Fazio family brings Reese's peanut butter cups. And um, a few years ago, um, a granddaughter was born. Um, who obviously would never ever get to meet her, her granddad, um, but they named her Reese. And in the exhibition, it's her onesie 
which has the colors and the logo of the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup on it. And I mean, you can't help but laugh because it's so sweet. And it's, that's, that's the kind of thing that we do to, you know, it, it's wonderful to pull these things out of the collection. It's wonderful to share them with our public. You know, it's interesting you talk about these firsthand stories that the World Trade Center Tribute Museum opened prior to this facility opening, and it recently closed. And one of the focal points of what that museum did was get these people with these firsthand stories to tour and, and, and help people understand is there, how much of that do you do, and is there a way to kind of adopt that part of their program to, to spread the word that way? You know, I think we already do, and we have from day one. I mean, as, as I mentioned before, this is a storytelling museum. So the way we relate to history and the way we convey history is we tell it through the people who were there, the eyewitnesses, the, you know, we have the voicemails, we have the radio transmissions, we have the cockpit voice recorders, we have tons of first-person content, we have oral histories, um, and many of our docents and, um, it, you know, the interpretive guides tell those stories. Some are people um, who were affiliated with the Tribute Museum, some are people who were not but still have their 9-11 stories to tell and to share. So that level of authenticity of eyewitness experience is very much baked into to this museum. I think the Tribute Museum did something um, uh, that, that is not part of our mission per se, although we certainly welcome everyone to gather here. Uh, they really provided a space for people who were living in Lower Manhattan, who were family members, uh, first responders, um, to have a place to go to be with one another. And it was almost a therapeutic um, mission, if you will. Uh, and I think that's a sad thing that that's, that is no longer available to them. You know, that's unfortunate. Um, as, as the 9-11 Memorial Museum, you know, we see our role as serving a very broad community. We're here for the public as much as for the families and the first responders and lower Manhattan residents. All of these uh, people are part of our stakeholders, if you will. Um, so I think that's the piece that's a little bit, was always different for us. Um, you know, and as you say, Tribute was here before there was a memorial, before there was a museum. And they really provided a wonderful service, particularly in those early years. You and I have spoken many times through the years, and it certainly seems like your heart has always been in the right place. So I, I thank you for your time through the years and today, and I certainly wish you well. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Peter. Greenwald is retiring next month. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The aftermath of 9-11 led to thousands of rescue and recovery workers descending on the site to help find victims and then clear the tons of debris. The pulverized concrete, plastics, insulation, and anything else you can think of led to clouds of toxic dust. 
The World Trade Center Health Program was created to treat those sickened by the poisonous air. Congress has provided funding on two separate occasions, but now more money is needed to allow new patients to enroll. John Feal is a 9-11 responder who was injured at the site. He has organized efforts to pressure members of Congress to pass both bills. Now he's fighting the battle once again. He spoke to our Peter Haskell. Why do we need another $3 billion? So Peter, when we got, um, in 2015, when we got the bill extended to 2090, we have enough funding to last till 2090. What we don't have enough funding for is the first 10 years because any bill that's more than 10 years in Congress has to find a pay-for. We fall short of that pay-for until 2025, $3 billion. We need that $3 billion to get to 2025. After that, we have the funding until 2090. In 2015, there were 76,000 people in the program. Now it's close to 118,000 people in the program. Nobody took into consideration um, medical inflation and we're feeling the blunt of that now. While we implore people to get in the World Trade Center Health Program, the federal government was not keeping up with us and our demand of more people getting sick and more people dying and more people needing um, the tools and the guidance of the World Trade Center Health Program to monitor us and treat us. With that being said, we worked diligently all summer along with Senator Schumer, who promised us that this bill will be attached to the omnibus at the end of the year, which is the president's budget. The good news is, and I always try to find the positive because the bad news is we're going to lose good doctors and nurses along the way because they need to put food on their own table. Those who are waiting to get certified are going to have to wait a little longer, and that's hard to tell somebody when they're sick and dying. Back in 2010, when the bill was originally uh, authored into law, it, it excluded military and civilians from the Pentagon. When this bill gets passed in December and attached to the omnibus, the eight, 1,200 people from the Pentagon that are not allowed or were removed from the World Trade Center Health Program will now be able to come forward and get back in the World Trade Center Health Program and then file a BCF claim. And we implore them all now, even though they're not in the World Trade Center Health Program technically, to file a BCF claim. Um, you'd be foolish not to. Um, you can go through all of the paperwork, get ahead of the curve, and then get into the World Trade Center Health Program, get your illness certified. And it'll make all the VCF law firms out there work that much easier. You know, for 21 years now, we have faced nothing but obstacles and hurdles. And um, we used to have a, to go around them. Now we just steamroll them and go through them. And um, we're going to get this done by the end of the year. And again, I don't say this lightly because when we face these obstacles and hurdles, uh, good people get sick and good people die. And um, this program was put in place for those who have a fighting chance from the aftermath of 9-11. And um, if that program falls short of its mission, then we fall short of our mission as advocates, and then those people get sick and die. And it's on us. And it's on us to, um, you know, it takes grassroots activism to get a bill passed, but it takes advocates um, to watch and guard this bill 24-7. And that's what we're doing. Take a step back. If the, if the funding doesn't go through, if it's not passed, what happens to the program? What happens to the people in the program? And what happens to people who want to be in the program? Um, well, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. We'll lose doctors and nurses. Those who are getting um, prescription drugs will get generic prescription drugs. Those who are trying to get in the program, which is a normal one-month, two-month, three-month wait, will now wait six months to a year. Um, 
that $3 billion also allows us to add new illnesses to the bill. So those that we now know clusters of, that we know illnesses that should be added, that ain't going to happen. And uh, at the end of the day, when we meet bureaucracy, that's not working. Um, it's the 9-11 individuals that pay the price, and we're paying the price right now. 21 years later, we're paying the price. And when we get this $3 billion put back in the World Trade Center Health Program so it can run until 2090, um, it's not going to um, save anybody's lives in the meaning that, oh, we got the $3 billion, good luck, here you go. It just gives us a fighting chance. These doctors and nurses all have 20 years of environmental expertise in these diseases now. You know, the first 20 years decimated the 9-11 responder community. That means first responders, volunteers, responders. The next 20 years are going to eradicate us, and I don't say this lightly. Um, the worst is coming. We have not seen the worst yet. And um, this $3 billion will help save lives. Why do you say the worst is coming? Last year I put 295 names on my wall in Long Island. This year we're putting 382 names on our wall. Each year gets worse. You know, the average age of 38.6 years old, let's just say 39, 20 years ago on 9-11, um, the average age is now 59.60. With age, humbles you, things start to hurt, things start to not work, and um, add these life-altering, uh, debilitating illnesses, life-threatening illnesses, and um, these men and women, uniform and non-uniform, aren't going to make it to the average age expectancy of 78.6 years old. We're a finite number. We're literally dying every day. It's not like, oh, somebody used to die a week ago, or somebody used to die a month ago. Literally, somebody's in the 9-11 community dying every day. And um, a lung cancer in the general population to a lung cancer in the 9-11 community are two different lung cancers. One is pissed off and, um, and, and just vicious. The other one's treated by doctors, and you have a good fighting chance that you might survive it. And um, we need to... Uh, the World Trade Center Health Program, NIOSH, the federal government, the elected officials... They need to evolve with us as we evolve for the worst. And I'm, I wish I can lie and paint a, a rosy picture right now with a happy landscape, but the cold reality of it is, is that yesterday's heroes from that horrific Tuesday who survived that day, who are now living today in agony and pain, it's only going to get worse. So explain this. If I understand this correctly, the $3 billion was in Build Back Better, which never got signed. Why not put this as a standalone bill? Would, would that make sense? In the perfect world, it would. It would. Um, we wanted it in the standalone bill. Senator Manchin squashed that. Um, and I understand the importance of uh, the American people because we are a small fraction of that. But being selfish, we should have been in there. Um, putting this on the floor by itself as a standalone bill would open the floodgates um, for the opposition. Um, it's a health care bill. So it would go on the floor with amendments and get weighed down, and um, it would go way past December. It would go into next year, and we don't know who controls the House next year. So the next largest vehicle is the omnibus, and uh, right now our allies control that, and we're going to get it done. I've spoken to the Senate Majority Leader. I've spoken to the White House. I've spoken to the Speaker of the House, and they have all promised me that we're going to get this in the omnibus.
So 21 years later, you still cannot get anything close to unanimous support for this? I don't think we're in the climate now where you get unanimous support. If I had a chocolate cake in front of me and somebody's going to say it's vanilla when we know it's chocolate, it's just it's the climate that we live in. But the cold, hard reality is your truth is not my fact. And um, people are sick and dying, and that's fact. So tell me about this. If, if I looked at the numbers correctly, there are probably 400 people registering every month. Correct. Tell, Tell us about who are these people, what kinds of problems do they have? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, listen, we're not only trying to get responders and first responders and volunteers in the program, because about 85, 90% of the uh, responder communities in the program, we want those who lived in Lower Manhattan or went to school in Lower Manhattan or worked in Lower Manhattan to get in the program, because only about 10 to 12% of them are in the program. We need to do a better job of reaching out to them an example, using uh, your uh, your platform, because people listen to this. If you were down the south below Canal Street to the water to the Brooklyn Bridge, get in the program. Even if you're not sick, just get registered, because when you do get sick and you have a 60% chance of higher risk in the population, get in the program, because it will be easier to facilitate you through the program. But these people are now coming down with severe cancers, um, severe respiratory illnesses, COPD, um, pulmonary fibrosis, skin cancer, brain cancer, lung cancer. We seen every, you know, in 2010 there was no cancer. 2011 we got four cancers added. Now we see 68 cancers added to the bill, and um, we've seen all 68, and we've seen what they can do. And um, we're watching people die in front of us every day. I guess uh, 20 years. 20 years is kind of a magic number for cancer. Well, if you go by epidemiology, it's 17 years, right? So we're past that. Um, you know, we're scraping the surface of the asbestos now, right? And that might not kill you right away, but that's going to make you wish you wanted dead. You were dead because that is a painful way to go, and we're on the cusp of that now. And those in the 9-11 community who have been fortunate not to have cancer, you're at a high, really, really good chance of getting asbestos, and um, you're going to wish you had cancer and died. So, again, a lot of the people who are registered now are people who are not responders per se. They just lived or worked or went to school in the area. Correct. And we're hoping, we're hoping that all of the um, major corporations and businesses that worked in, uh, that had uh, uh, hundreds of employees on 9-11 in the days and weeks that followed, that they work with us so that we can reach out to the retirees who might have moved, who might have died. You know, some people can't put two and two together and say, well, you know, I had cancer back in 2011, you know. Our bill is presumptive. You could have smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. But if you got lung cancer or kidney cancer or bladder cancer or brain cancer, you qualify and you can file a claim. You can get free health care. How does the passage of time impact the ability or the, the way that it works for people actually to come in and say, I'm going to sign up? Well, we're, we're, uh, we're fortunate enough to be signing up uh, people, but it's not enough. Um, we see spikes. We see peaks and valleys. But we should just see uh, a peak without a valley. And anybody who lived or worked or went to school, who worked on the pile, was a volunteer, um, get in the program. Get in the program. It's that simple. Um, You'll be doing yourself a f uh, favor and your family a favor, and um, 
it might be safe. Even if it wasn't you and you know somebody, a relative or a friend or a coworker, you might be saving a life. Do you think, I guess, what is your level of confidence this bill will actually pass come the end of the year? 110%. I can't, you know, I, you know this is my 17th piece of legislation. I'm 16 for 16. I'm never going to say this isn't going to get done. If I thought that way, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, this is bigger than me. This bill is bigger than Michael Barish and Barish Mayor. This bill is going to help tens of thousands of people directly affected by... The government lied to us. The government directly, intentionally lied to us, and they never apologized. The James Sedroga Health and Compensation Act was created because of a lie. Tens of thousands of people got sick. Thousands have died. Nobody ever said, hey, John, hey, Bob, hey, Carl, hey, Troy, we're really sorry for lying to you. But let us give you this program. But first, you've got to work for it. First, you've got to make th- hundreds of trips to D.C. and walk thousands of miles in the halls of Congress, and we'll call it even. Did none of that makes sense as a common-sense thinking man. But because of a lie, we had a fight for justice, and sometimes justice falls asleep while we're trying to help tens of thousands of people, and we're going to make sure justice gets somebody into the year. And just to be clear, we're talking about what happens if this doesn't pass, that the program won't close its doors. It's just new people won't be able to get in. You know, the federal government moves at a snail's pace. In human life, we move pretty quick. You told me today you'd be here at 11.15. At 11.15 in the federal government, that's next Thursday. And um, we have a lot more work to do. We're monitoring this every day. We have constant contact with Washington, D.C., And um, we're going to get this done. According to the health program, almost 5,400 people had died of 9-11 related illnesses as of June 30th. The push now is to get Congress to approve the spending. WCBS anchor Steve Scott spoke to New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. The World Trade Center health program has a looming funding shortfall of $3 billion. You've worked to fund the program in the past. What's the mood in Congress now to fully fund the program? I think there's generally bipartisan support for our first responders. These were the men and women who raced up towers when everybody else was running for their lives. And they stayed on that mound. They stayed at ground zero to find survivors. And then the hard work of uh, finding remains and toxins they breathed in really did cause horrible diseases and cancers. And so... um, We have a lot of unanimity about the importance of standing by our first responders and actually funding their health care. So despite the large price tag, I believe that we will have the support that we need. And I suspect um, this bill will be added to one of the must-pass end-of-session bills. And so I'm optimistic that we will be able to work for them. Is a standalone bill possible? Would that be the route to go? We certainly could do a standalone bill. Um, I'm writing a letter to leadership uh, basically saying you must get this done in whatever way possible, whether it's a standalone bill, whether it's part of a year-end omnibus, whether it's part of um, the end of the year spending for the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Uh, It just has to be included in any of those three vehicles. And so I leave that to leadership to decide what's the best approach. But it's just a it's a must include. You have been through this fight before. There is always opposition, normally outside the tri-state. 
what do opponents tell you and what do you say to them? So in the past, when we've had opponents, um, I remind them how fearless these first responders were and how they deserve basic health care to save their lives, to make sure their families don't have to go into bankruptcy. This is a benefit that is deeply earned. And they believe it because this was a terror attack and these men and women went above and beyond. There's also family members that lived at Ground Zero that were also exposed to these terrible toxins and they need protection too. So there's usually support and if there is any pushback, it's always about money. Um, But this is something that is a statement of our values and if we can't stand by those who stand by us, then who are we? And so that usually wins the day. Are you confident that the program will be fully funded? I am. I I believe that we will have the uh, collaborative effort that we need, and I'm optimistic we will get this done. The people who are sick and help pick the city up from its knees. The 9-11 anniversary is a time to honor their sacrifice and remember the innocent victims who were killed. That's it for 880 In-Depth. The executive producers are Tim Scheld and Peter Haskell. Thanks to our guests, Alice Greenwald, John Field, and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. I'm Michael Wallace. Thanks for listening, and never forget. Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.